Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer JJ O'Shea looks at the history of an association which has long been central to Irish cultural life in Australia and the life of the man who established it in 1915. This is the first hundred years, Albert Dreyer and the Irish National Association. <laughs> I started going to the uh, INA on a Sunday night, really big dance, and it was social dancing, you know, and yeah, I'd never look back. I, I love going. The fact that you have a building there in Sydney where there was a hunger strike is extremely unusual, <laughs> I can tell you that now. I can't think of another you know, thing like that in Australian history. I think people now realise what a tremendous resource there is available to them here in Sydney. And we've seen an explosion in use. People just love that and they use it and they value it. The Irish National Association of Australasia, or the INA, to give it the colloquial term by which it's best known, has been a key element in the cultural life of Irish Australia for over a hundred years, most especially for the Irish community in Sydney and New South Wales. And many first encountered the INA through its social dimension, its many dance nights, and through its sister association, the Gaelic Club, which is housed in the INA building in Devonshire Street in Sydney. But the social dimension of the INA is only one aspect of its rich and varied history. In fact, when the Gaelic Club was opened in 1974, the INA was already almost 60 years old. And that social aspect wasn't central to its foundation. The INA was founded in 1915 by a man called Albert Dreyer. He'd been inspired by the early Irish feminist Alice Stopford Green and her book Irish Nationality, in which she stressed the absolute need for Irish political independence and the value and uniqueness of Irish culture and the need to save it from erosion by the dominating Anglo culture. And these two points became the guiding lights for Albert Dreyer, who saw the same erosion of Irish culture in Australia as the Irish assimilated into the wider population. And these were the principles that became his mission. And mission isn't too strong a word. Historian Jeff Kilday. Yeah, Albert is an interesting character. He was... Um Born in Australia of mixed parentage, his father was of German and Irish descent. His mother was born in Ireland. And he, in his whole life, never visits Ireland. And in some ways he becomes more Irish than the Irish. Um, he genuinely feels that there needs to be some organisation which will take Irish history seriously, that will teach uh, the Irish in the Sydney community uh, their native language. Um, and he's talking not only about um, Irish-born, but Irish-Australians. And, of course, um, they are in very much in the majority. 
In fact, Irish immigration to Australia had peaked in 1860 and numbers of new immigrants had fallen off considerably by 1915. But there was a very large group of Irish Australians, people of Irish descent, and Dreyer's aim was to help this group reconnect with its Irish heritage and to encourage it to support the fight for Irish freedom. Now, it's very, very reminiscent of, say, D.P. Moran and his Irish Ireland League in Ireland, that, you know, there's uh, the only true Irishman is the, the one who has these strong nationalist feelings, and which is odd for a, a person who, of course, has this mixed ancestry. Uh, he ensures that the rules of the, of the association, its constitution, are stacked in such a way that... Uh, that nationalist feeling uh, is to dominate. And at that time also, you've got... um, Most of the Australian Irish are very supportive of home rule and had been for uh, 40 years. Um, uh, The Redmond brothers visited uh, Australia in 1883 and stayed for 10 months and raised more money in Australia than they did in America, which they visited on their return journey to Ireland. So the Australian Irish were very strongly supportive of Home Rule and of uh, the Redmonds. Uh, Willie Redmond in particular visits Australia uh, a number of times uh, after that first visit. Both Redmond brothers uh, marry uh, Australian girls and they go back to, uh, to back home with the Australia, uh, the, these wives who were Australian-born. So there's this strong attachment between the Australian Irish and the, the Home Rule movement. But Dreyer... Um, quickly uh, moves away from home rule to this idea of Irish independence. Albert Dreyer defined the purpose of the INA in its constitution and in the clearest, most forthright terms. To assist Ireland achieve her national identity. To encourage the use of Irish as a written and as a spoken language, to foster the study of Irish history, Irish literature, Irish music, Irish art, Irish dancing, Irish sports and Irish pastimes. And he laid out the reasons why Irish Australians should join the INA. Because you are a member of the Irish race because Ireland is a primary motherland of Australia, because the history of Ireland is for you a source of pride, great and legitimate. Within five years of its founding, the INA had picked up some 2,000 members, so it was clearly meeting a need and an interest. During the earlier years, during the the drier years, uh, from 1915 through to the early 1920s, there was a lot of um, uh, Irish culture, Irish history um, spoken and dealt with in the meetings. Uh, They would have lectures on Irish history. They would uh, finish their meetings with an Irish dance. Um, They would have regular Cayleys. And so it was very much a part of the the activities of the INA in those first... uh, half a dozen years, uh, this uh, 
inculcating Irish culture into its, its members. And so for some, that was all they wanted anyway, um, Irish culture. Uh, for others who are of a political bent, uh, they could exercise their uh, ideas too through uh, talks on history and politics uh, of Ireland uh, and in taking part in um, uh, activities that uh, were designed to uh, show solidarity with the struggle in Ireland for, um, for self-determination. So it, in that first half dozen years, there was this ability to... Um, uh, to blend the cultural with the political. After Britain's response to the Easter Rising, the execution of rebel leaders, the introduction of martial law, exile and internment in Wales, there was a shift in the attitude of the Irish in Australia, just as there was in Ireland. A shift towards the position that Dreyer had always held. And, of course, we're in the middle of the First World War now and suspicion falls on the Irish from the greater Anglo-descended population, a suspicion that wasn't new. In 1804 in uh, Castle Hill, just outside of Sydney, there was a, an uprising uh, of about 200 convicts. Most of them were Irish convicts, many of whom had been transported to New South Wales following the 1798 rebellion in Ireland. And uh, that uprising has been called the, the Vinegar Hill Uprising in uh, the Australian context, uh, in uh, imitation of Vinegar Hill, in, uh, of course, in the Irish Rising of 1798. Uh, in the 1860s, we have the Fenians uh, in Ireland, and uh, there's an attempted assassination of, the, uh, of Queen Victoria's second son, uh, Prince Alfred, who was visiting Sydney. Uh, and the... Uh, person who shot him uh, was one Henry James O'Farrell, who uh, was an Irishman. So there's big fear of the Irish, that they were rebellious and that they were going to uh, uh, rise up. And of course, that was similar to the view of Catholics, that they could never be trusted. So you've got, after no the 1916 rising, the community is split along ethno-religious lines. And there's great suspicion of Irish Catholics in the Australian community. Now, at the same time, there uh, was a movement amongst some of uh, the Irish, particularly um, uh, people like Albert Dreyer and uh, friends of his who were advanced nationalists, uh, to try to support the revolutionary movement in Ireland, uh, and in particular the uh, Irish Republican Brotherhood, the IRB, and branches of the IRB are established in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And most of those who are in these cells of uh, IRB uh, people are members of the Irish National Association. So the authorities, uh, the security forces, uh, start uh, to um, carry out surveillance uh, opening their mail uh, and uh, uh, doing raids on their houses, doing raids on the INA's uh, offices. And for the most part, very little turns up, except in Melbourne, where Morris Dalton, who was uh, uh, the organiser down there, was a bit lax with his secret correspondence. He left it out in the open. And so the police, when they raided, uh, were able to find some of this correspondence, which 
in some ways was uh, certainly on its face was quite damning in terms of uh, the association of these people with the IRB, uh, with the view to raising money to uh, buy guns for the Irish rebels, but through Germany. Uh, and so in this First World World context, uh, this, of course, is grist to the mill for the security forces. Uh, and so in uh, June of 1918, uh, they round up seven members of the INA uh, on the basis of their suspicions that these people are uh, in league with the Germans with a view ultimately to helping the Irish rebellion. But, of course, that's a, a rebellion against uh, the, the Crown and loyal Australians, uh, in their view, of course, should be supporting the Crown against Germany in the war and not, uh, not having these other activities. So what came to be known as the Irish Seven were rounded up and interred without trial. And the tone of the report in the Sydney Daily Telegraph on the 20th of June, 1918, surely reflects the mood of the establishment. An Australian division of an organisation known as the Irish Republican Brotherhood has been formed in Australia. This body has been secretly and systematically organised and its object is the establishment of an Irish Republic independent of Britain. Part of the plan of this organisation was to aid armed revolt and money for hostile purposes was remitted from Australia. The members of this brotherhood in certain cases have been active forces in the Irish National Association. While the declared objects of this association are quite consistent with loyalty, it is clear from some branch reports that sinister attempts have been made by the Republican extremists to pervert these objects. These extremists have been using the Irish National Association as a cloak. The facts having been ascertained and carefully considered, the government determined to take prompt and decisive measures. This week it simultaneously arrested seven of the ringleaders in this conspiracy and interred them. A public inquiry was held, presided over by a judge. And in the course of that public inquiry, uh, uh, Ju Justice John Harvey of the New South Wales Supreme Court uh, hears evidence and he ultimately comes to the view that the government does have a case to uh, maintain uh, these um, people in internment. Um, and so there they remain until after the, the war ends. Most of them were released in December, but Dreyer was held until February. He'd been the main driving force and the most able organiser of the group. And that is so also in the INA as a whole, that uh, he was you know, quite a dynamic leader of the INA, um, both uh, before and after his internment. And... Almost from the outset, the organisation took under its wing the care and upkeep of the 1798 memorial at Waverley Cemetery. It's an impressive monument and a symbol of Irish-Australian heritage, as we'll see later. But after his release, Dreyer was dismissed from his job at the Customs House in the Commonwealth Public Service and other work ventures he tried came to naught, so... Difficult years ensued for him, 
and the INA also entered a difficult period. It was in financial trouble. And so they have to try to find a way of raising money, and one of the ways in which they find to raise money is to have dancers. Now, the INA, throughout its history from 1915 onwards, had always had dancers, but they were Irish dancers. Um, and that was one of Dreyer's great ideas, that uh, you know we should inculcate within the Sydney Irish community this idea of Irish dancing, and uh, we don't want uh, that horrible uh, English dancing. Um. But the INA did put on these old-time dances, which attracted quite a number of people and went some way towards raising much-needed funds. It was around this time that Albert Dreyer resigned from the INA and there he drops out of the story until the 1940s. The INA then entered a fallow period. There isn't time to consider all the reasons why, but numbers dramatically fell away and at times it was close to folding. However, from the mid-1930s, a revival began that would lead to a golden period. Historian Richard Reed. My suspicions about that always were that uh, more women became involved uh, in the INA uh, and began to look for what you might call more successful kind of dances. You know, what would bring people to an INA dance? Um, I mean, and I noticed this from, there was a columnist in the, in the uh, Catholic papers called Molly Bourne, and Molly was on about the social world in Sydney, you know, among Sydney's Catholics. And the INA was part of that, you know, she was reporting on their dances and that these were good places to go, these were fun places and, and everything else. There was also a character came along, uh, Kennedy, um, Sean Kennedy. He was from Crusheen in County Clare and uh, he was an Irish immigrant and he was apparently a very good dancer as, as well. And there was a, a phrase I, f I found which says wherever the you know, Sean went, the Irish in Sydney would follow him. You know, so he obviously was, again, a bit of an organiser and a bit of a pusher. So you get people coming in, I think, at that point, obviously, that decide, well, we're going to make this thing work. Another individual enters the picture and becomes very prominent in the INA, Dan Minogue, also from County Clare. And County Clare figures very largely in Irish migration uh, to New South Wales. You know, it was one of the biggest sending counties in the 19th century. Anyway, Dan, Dan Minogue uh, emigrates here, I think, in the 1920s. Um, but by the sort of late 1930s, he's an alderman in the city of Sydney. Um, and he's promoting Gaelic games as well. He's obviously a, a, a hurler. Um, and so he, he does actually push the idea the INA will support Gaelic games. So there is that element uh, uh, of the cultural delivery, if you like, uh, at that point. And Minogue is the person who, who eventually comes up with this organisation needs its own place. You know? And he's the one that pushes the idea that we must build our own building and get the land. And that's happening during the World War II period. You know, uh, and um, eventually he he is the one who says to the committee, "Well, I know how to go about getting the money uh, to do this. We must have our own headquarters." And he gets a loan from the Hibernian Australasian Catholic Benefit Society, you know, which is a, a mutual benefit or a hospital kind of thing, but it also lends money uh, to to buy properties or to buy houses. Um, and he gets money from them uh, to actually buy the new the Devonshire Street site uh, in 1940. 
1944, 45, yeah. So they, they borrow quite a considerable sum. The acquisition of a site on which to build their own premises was a major step forward. And incredibly, given their previous financial difficulties, the INA were able to pay off the debt in little over a year. And the way they do it is one of the kind of big mythological stories about the INA. Uh, and again, it's, it's down to Minogue. Minogue gets them to, to set up this Queen's pageant uh, where young ladies in different parishes around, the, around Sydney um, raise money to, to, um, you know, to buy this site or to, you know, to, to get rid of the debt uh, of the INA and, and to make more money as well for the eventual building. Uh, as, as well. I mean, they probably did think they would get a building a lot faster than, than they actually did. But um, this Queen's pageant is enormously successful. Uh, the, these, these girls between the managed to raise at the time, which was quite a, a princely sum, £11,000, know, which pays off the debt. Um, Kennedy's in, Sean Kennedy, who's the president, uh, is interesting there. Kennedy, by the way, is president all the way from the late 30s until 1962. He's there for an enormous length of time. He actually writes to De Valera, uh, suggesting that maybe some of De Valera's pals would like to s subscribe <laughs> to this proposed cultural centre for the Irish out in Sydney. That letter is actually in, in the archives of the Department of Foreign Affairs in, in Dublin. Uh, I couldn't find a response. <laughs> <laughs> at all, but the letter was certainly received uh, in 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 Ireland. I thought the you know that's pretty good. You know the goal of the man. He's 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 going to have a go, and he did. Um, anyway, so this Queen's pageant, uh, they they have a big ball in the Paddington Town Hall, which is hugely successful. They're kind of uh, leading uh, Irish Irish Australian. Now this is the one of the things that does occur with this is it's clear that the old Irish-Australian community of, you know, Catholics descended from, from the Irish who are members of local parish are subscribing uh, to this. There wouldn't have been enough among the you know, Irish-born population at that time to come up with that sort of money. Only one of the girls who uh, put herself forward to raise this money is, is actually Irish-born. Right? All the rest are actually Irish-Australians. But I thought this is interesting because this is the old Irish-Australian community being prepared you know, to do something. Uh, and I suspect that's Minogue again, you know, who's pushing hard and, and can stand up on his two feet and speak at parish meetings and things of that nature. He would be capable of that and would be capable of saying the kind of things that, you know, might have interested people like, well, isn't it important that, you know, your heritage is recognised in the centre of Sydney? You know, you came out, your people came out here in the 1840s, 1850s, but, you know, there's got to be some marker of what you've achieved, and this, this will do that. This, this will be an Irish cultural centre. You're listening to The First Hundred Years on Documentary on News Talk. Albert Dreyer almost certainly remained a member of the INA after his resignation as secretary. But it wasn't until 1946, by which time he was a practising medical doctor, that he reappears in the minutes of the annual general meeting of the INA. As the acknowledged founder of the INA, he was duly elected as vice president. Also, in September of that same year, Thomas J. Kiernan arrived with his wife, the well-known singer Delia Murphy, as Minister Plenipotentiary 
essentially the role of ambassador. And in February 1947, Kiernan was given an official welcome in the Sydney Town Hall. Richard Reid again. It, it's an official welcome. Nice little little recitations and things like that. The, the, the company Dreyer thinks the whole thing's completely tepid. It, uh, not really getting to the guts of the what we see here now in Kiernan is a representative of free democratic Ireland. That's not really... You know, because at the end of this thing, by the way, as well, they sing "God Save the King," God, you know, which is, uh, gosh, you know, uh, as well as they sing the soldier song as well, because Kiernan is there, and that's the official anthem, and that's fine. But "God Save the King" ends the evening. Doctor Dreyer would never have wanted to see any occasion in which "God Save the King" or "Queen" was the official anthem at the end of it. So anyway, Dreyer says that's not good enough. You know, that's not good enough as a, as a welcome to this first representative, you know, of a modern independent Ireland. So at Easter in 47, the INA stage a whole week of welcome in Sydney to Kiernan and his wife, uh, to Delia Murphy. Um, and the very first thing they do is, is head out to Waverley to the monument, the 1798 memorial. Now, the 1798 memorial was constructed in 1899-1900, and on the back of it are the names of the sort of uh, patriots of 98. Uh, there's actually a little space left for Robert Emmett's name because Emmett said, until you know, no man write my epitaph, as we know. Uh, and so they left a space for Robert Emmett. Um, but then they have all the others there, you know, the, the famous names from the 98, Wolf Tone and so on. But in 47, they add the 1916 Rising guys to the back of the Waverley Memorial. And so Dr. Keenan is asked to unveil those names. So it, it was regarded as the, the largest single ceremony was ever held there was Keenan arriving to do this. So that would have been a dryer-driven thing. Uh, that's on a Sunday. Uh, I think that might have been Easter Sunday. Easter Monday is the largest single concert in the Sydney Town Hall that the INA has ever mounted. Uh, it was absolutely packed. And this was a three- to four-hour presentation by Dreyer of Irish history. Um, I just can't even, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine now an audience that's willing to sit through something as long as this. It was eight tableaux all the way from the Norman invasion to the 1916 Rising. And so you had things going on, like one of the tableaux was the Pierce's oration at the funeral of O'Donovan Rosser. You know, in, in Glasnevin Cemetery, the whole thing. You know? um, and the bit about the, the Normans, the Normans' invasion of Ireland is, is taken as that's the moment, you know, when, when you know, Ireland is crushed, you know, and goes through 700 years of servitude and uh, all those kind of words that we're familiar with that would have, would have been used. But there's eight of these tab tableau with dancers and music, and, and Dreyer gives a whole commentary all the way through for this three hour performance, the audience would have been relieved with a bit of music, you know, as he said, Dr. Dreyer droning on and on uh, about, you know, about Irish history. That's what it is. It's a presentation, three-hour presentation of Irish history in the Sydney Town Hall. And there's Kieran and the wife sitting up the front, um, you know, and probably a lot of other worthies as well. You know, it's totally amazing. Uh, and then they do a big uh, tour of Sydney Harbour with about 200 people, uh, more actually, and then on another, the last event is a, is a big ball in the Sydney Town Hall as well. So there's what Dreyer regards as a proper Irish welcome 
to Kiernan. This is doing it properly. You know, this is acknowledging you know, that, that what we have here is the representative of, you know, uh, 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 well, the man who, if you like, is representing what happened in 1916, you know, the founding of the Republic and everything else. He is its first representative in this country and he must be properly, properly acknowledged. You know. Kiernan arrives at just the right time for Dreyer. In every way, he's a very polished diplomat. He's also an extremely cultured man. He's, he's, uh, he's Dr. Kiernan. He has written books about the Irish economy and things of that nature, but he's also pals with people like Lady Gregory. Back in our was, she's dead at that point, but he was, he was a pal of hers because he actually was a trustee of her will and things of that nature. He goes along and, and he gives a, a presentation to the committee with, with Dreyer there, suggesting that they become an Irish centre for the arts in, in Sydney. You know, and this would be a beacon, if you like, to the, you know, to, to the world, you know, if you could create that here. Uh, and he says, I will help. So he very much uh, supports anything that Dreyer thinks would be you know, a way of culturally improving the INA and getting this whole idea across that this is what we're about. The INA should be about promoting Irish culture. It's not about a place just to you know, socialise with your mates after work. It's, it's, it's a place where we should be promoting all the best of Irish you know, art and literature and music and everything else, history and so on. Dreyer was enthused by Kiernan's support and expressed his hopes in a letter to him. That the work of the INA should be cast within the framework of an Irish Academy of Fine Arts is, I feel, an inspiring thought. And I should be happy to devote what remains of my life to such a project. Its consummation would be the realisation of what, for decades, appeared to be a hopeless dream. In 1948, the INA had the opportunity to host another major event. After losing the general election, Eamon de Valera made a visit to Australia and undertook an extensive tour of the country. His aim was to raise awareness of the issue of partition amongst the diaspora. When he arrives in Sydney, he meets Dreyer. I'm pretty sure that Kiernan would have asked him to meet Dreyer and said, Dreyer's the man who can organise Sydney for you. And uh, Dreyer agrees. He, he will organise Dev's three days in Sydney before he goes on up to uh, Brisbane later. And the centrepiece of this is, is a big meeting out in, in Rushcutters Bay in a stadium out there, which is a wrestling stadium, basically. But um, they, they get something like 11,000 people that come along to listen to, to Dev. Uh, Dreyer organises the evening. There's uh, all sorts of Irish music before that, but it's rebel music, you know. It's it's uh, yes, it's Republican style stuff. And then uh, there, there are four young ladies carry flags of the four provinces, and behind them come Dev and Frank Aiken. They get up onto a stage, and Dev is allowed. Is, it gives the main speech. People determined themselves at that time after all the statements that were made by President Wilson and by the British by the British ministers at that time, the Irish people determined themselves as an independent republic. What did those who said they were out fighting for the rights of small nations do with regard to it? Precisely, we got the black and tan. It's, it's a big night, and um, Dev used to have Christmas cards sent out to Dreyer every year. Uh, Dreyer regarded Dev almost like a saint. 
He was the man, the survivor of the 16 Rising, the man who's raised, uh, you know, Ireland up. Uh, he even talks about him not as a political leader, but as the leader of the race. The INA's building in Devonshire Street was opened in 1956, but bingo and dance nights remained regular events in addition to its cultural offerings to keep things afloat financially. And over the years, there was growing support within the committee to apply for a liquor licence. And eventually, in a members' meeting in 1962, uh, there's enough support to vote for the construction of a bar on the top floor. Dreyer is horrified. Uh, he sees, for example, that, that the uh, president even you know, um, votes for this thing. And so he, he feels extremely let, let down by this. And he comes up, he, he, he writes this speech condemning the whole idea of uh, reducing the INA to, to the status of a, of, a, of a tavern or a grog bar. You know, that has never been the, 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 you know, the purpose of the INA. You know, it's always been cultural. Uh, and we may as well shut the door you know, if, if what we're going to create here is a, a typical you know, club with alcohol and uh, so on. There's no record that the speech was actually ever delivered, but a copy survives in which Dreyer outlines his feelings in the clearest possible terms. The point at issue is simply this. Can a liquor bar coexist with a great cultural Irish organisation dedicated to the honour and welfare of Ireland and her traditions and ideals, founded, developed and conducted by men and women derived from the island of saints and scholars? I may categorically, unequivocally, and definitely state that it cannot. But Dreyer was swimming against the tide. Apart from anything else, a licensed bar might help address the ongoing financial situations. And after Dreyer died the following year, the road was open for an accommodation to be found. And a sister organisation, a social club with a licence to sell alcohol, titled the Gaelic Club, was eventually opened in the INA building. It takes them a while to get the Gaelic club going. They, they do get the licence eventually, and it is built or constructed on the top floor, and it's actually opened by the Irish ambassador in 1974. And initially it is highly successful. It becomes one of the key places for Irish music. In Sydney there's a revival of Irish music going on, as we know, in the 70s anyway. So it becomes a place, if you like, for that famous Irish word, Sessions. Jimmy Malarkey emigrated to Australia in the 1970s and he remembers the Gaelic club from that time. The Gaelic club was the only place to go then. There was no Irish pubs around as such back then like there is nowadays. And everything centred around the Gaelic club and they used to be chock-a-blocked every night of the week. They used to have a dance downstairs on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday nights. There'd be a band playing there and then there'd be a band playing upstairs as well and you'd kind of go between the two. In 1979, the INA took on the organisation of the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Sydney and used it as a platform to showcase Irish arts and history and Ireland's place in the story of Australia. Historian Perry McIntyre. 
the basis of the INA was to try and uh, promote Irish culture and they saw the parade as a way of, of uh, highlighting that and, and promoting that and showing the general public within Sydney particularly what Ireland had to offer. And it wasn't just shamrockery. It's not drinking green beer and walking around in green clothes. It's identifying with the culture of, of Ireland, what Ireland had to, to offer to Australia and what the Irish immigrants who had been here, people like me who have got Irish ancestors, but several generations ago, who didn't necessarily identify as being Irish or English or Scottish or whatever our backgrounds were. But St Patrick's Day Parade was a chance for people to see what Ireland offered uh, and what Ireland had done um, to help Australia. One thing, of course, that, that would have, was tremendously important in relation to the modern history of the INA is, is the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland, because after all, the INA uh, was founded uh, to support Irish independence. That was its you know, raison d'etre for Dreyer all the way back in, in 1915. So when the, the modern Ulster Troubles start uh, back in 1968-69, the INA gets into it straight away in terms of uh, setting up committees to raise money for people who've been evicted from their homes in Belfast and uh, things of that nature. But the real sudden impact uh, the IIA makes in the statement about, about Northern Ireland is when the uh, shootings occur in Derry in 1972. The shootings happened on the 30th of January of that year, with 13 killed outright and the INA organised a protest march in Sydney for the 6th of February and the making of 13 coffins which were carried in the march. What is also interesting is that there are guys marching in black berets in the march through Sydney. Um, so it, it, it shows that the INA is you know, certainly wanting to make a big statement at that point, about what's what's happening in, in, the, in the north of Ireland. Another time the INA made a significant statement regarding the Troubles was during the hunger strikes of 1980 and 81. Again, protest marches were organised in Sydney. And in one of those protest marches, there's a young man with a blanket uh, marching along, and that's a guy called Ned O'Connor from County Offaly. And Ned is obviously making a statement because the, the, the hunger strikes, as we know, part of that was the famous blanket protest as well, where you would not wear prison clothes and you draped yourself in a blanket. And, you know, it, the, this is long cash and the maze and the whole horror of all that period in, in uh, Belfast. Um, after the deaths of Bobby Sands and, and co, uh, O'Connor himself goes on hunger strike because he's trying to convince the Australian government of Malcolm Fraser to ask Margaret Thatcher, who was the British Prime Minister at the time, um, to allow the uh, demands of the hunger strikers in, in Belfast. You know, this is uh, no prison clothing and right of association, a whole range of things that, they, that, they, that they're asking for at that time. And Ned's hunger strike is actually, he, he holds the hunger strike in the INA building. And there's a, there's a photograph of him lying on a bed with all these icons of Irish nationalism behind him, a picture of uh, Max Sweeney, the famous Lord Mayor of Cork, who dies in, in 19, uh, 1920 in a, of hunger strike in Brixton Prison. Um, Padraig Pearce, Irish tricklers, 
um, Republican statements from Belfast, they're all on the wall behind him. And there he is lying there on the, on the bed in hunger strike. Uh, and this goes on. I mean, he, I, I think he's quite a way through the strike when his, um, his mother and his sister come out from Ireland, from, from Offaly. Um, now, we don't know whether they tried to persuade him to stop or not, uh, but we do know that quite shortly after that he does. He gets a message as well from a number of MPs in Canberra saying, look, you know, we, have, we are lobbying the government here to do something about this. You know, you've made your point. You know, there's no need for you to die, you know, etc. But that was another you know, period. I mean, the fact that you have a building there in Sydney where there was a hunger strike is extremely unusual, <laughs> I can tell you that now. I can't think of another thing like that in Australian history. Uh, at that point, anyway, certainly not in the 20th century, you know, somebody going on hunger strike in a, an association building in a capital city. But there's Ned O'Connor from Offaly doing it. And the INA continued in its care of the 1798 memorial in Waverley as the final burial site for Michael Dwyer, the Wicklow chief and hero of the 1798 rebellion, the memorial remains an important reminder both of Ireland's fight for freedom and long connections with Australia. In fact, Eamon de Valera had been so impressed by the monument with its high Celtic cross and mosaics depicting the round tower at Glendalough, he said he wished there was something of similar stature in Ireland. The INA still organise an event at the memorial every Easter Sunday where an oration is delivered and the proclamation is read in English and Irish. During his long tenure as president of the INA, Dennis O'Flynn took a particular interest in the memorial and was behind its recent restoration. We meet up at the, at the gates, you know, the main gate, and uh, walk down in procession following the tricolour and the four provinces. All the, all the old uh, ones who are still around go there regularly. There are people who have never missed out. Of course, feelings can run high at these kind of events, and Dennis remembers one such occasion. All of a sudden there was a fuss, and there was this bloke running away with the Australian flag and somebody else chasing him, because the fact was he objected to the Union Jack being on the Australian flag and it couldn't be flown there, so it hasn't been done since. The sale of the ground floor at Devonshire Street has freed the INA from the financial struggles that were a recurring theme throughout its history. And today, it still offers the many activities you might expect to find at an Irish cultural centre. Classes in the Irish language and in Irish music and dance. Talks on Irish history. There's the Albert Dreyer Library of books related to Ireland and the offer of space to organisations like the Sydney Irish Film Festival. But in addition, there are some activities on offer that would have surprised Albert Dreyer. Carl Kinsella is the current president of the INA. Sydney Queer Irish was founded here 10 years ago, and it is self-described Sydney Queer Irish. They run monthly um, social events, they, um, I guess it's a, a network in a community to support that particular community, but everyone's welcome. Um, and I'm particularly pleased that they have their meetings here. They have some of their social events here. And Mardi Gras, which people may know, is a huge event in Sydney uh, with a large parade. 
on Mardi Gras weekend, the place is just buzzing from Friday to Sunday. Um, rehearsals, media interviews, they set up, there might be a hundred of them taking part. Hair, makeup, glitter. And, you know, it's just fantastic that they have a hub. And this is their their kind of home, if you like. Um, so we're, we're a wide a wide church. The INA also provides rooms for the Irish Support Agency, which works closely with the Irish Consulate. They're the people who are at the pointy end of things here. So when uh, young people, and usually these young people, die because of accidents here when they're on holidays, they're the organisation that will be in contact with the family in Ireland, will arrange accommodation for them and will support the family here if... Irish citizens get into trouble with the the police or court system. They'll be the people who make the court visits and the um, jail visits. Um, they do a lot of work with the uh, older Irish community here. So so they um, they uh, they would make phone calls to them. They will do home visits to them. They will operate a, a drop-in centre here every fortnight where. Um, that older community can come together, have a meal, have some social interaction. They do computer classes for older people, uh, counselling services for anybody, but predominantly that tends to be the younger younger people, and a whole range of support to that Irish community. And they're an organisation there in the background until a moment of crisis when they're now the most important organisation you could perhaps have contact with. Already into its second century, Carl's focus is on the future of the INA. Essentially, there's a building that is owned by an Irish organisation that is provided free of charge with no conditions, you know, to Irish community, cultural, political, social organisations um, at no cost, any time they wanted, really. And we've seen an explosion in use. People just love that and they use it and they value it. This programme was supported by a grant from Commission Naman with the television licence fee. The First Hundred Years was produced by J.J. O'Shea. Excerpts from the INA Central Oral History Project were used with kind permission from the National Library of Australia. For more documentaries, visit Newstalk.com.